are going to Matthew chapter 15. Continuing our series here in the Gospel of Matthew, this is message number 37 in that series, entitled, Who is Your Teacher? We'll be looking at verses uh, 1 through 20 here in Matthew chapter 15. And as we get started, I'm going to read verses 1 and 2. Then came to Jesus scribes and Pharisees, which were of Jerusalem, saying, Why do thy disciples transgress the tradition of the elders? For they wash not their hands when they eat bread. So for about 1,400 years... Israel, the, those Jews that were descended from Jacob and Isaac and Abraham, they had a religious identity and community and a way of life that was based on the Torah, the books of Moses. Now, the Torah contains the Old Covenant and its law given at Sinai, from which came the tabernacle and the priesthood and the sacrifices, the feasts, and the 613 commandments regulating the lives of the Israelites and their relationships to God, uh, to their neighbors, and to foreigners. Now, there are hints in the Torah, and then there are promises explicitly made later through the prophets that God revealed that he would make a new covenant with Israel and with Judah. And the writer of Hebrews picked up on this, making the Mosaic covenant old and obsolete. And he says that God did this by saying he would make a new covenant. Now, the letter of Hebrews was written not long before the temple in Jerusalem was destroyed in AD 70. And the letter of, to the Hebrews was written to Jews who had professed faith in Jesus Christ. But they were facing of fierce persecution, a lot of difficulties, and they were tempted to return to Jerusalem and the temple. And the writer of Hebrews is clear in his warnings to them that to do such was to turn away from Christ. Now, it may not seem immediately apparent what this has to do with our passage today, but I hope by the time that we get to the end, um, we will see whether it has anything to do with it or not. So chapter 14 uh, opened up with this rejection story. Of course, this was particularly of John the Baptist. And uh, then there was a series of miracles that follows in that chapter revealing the deity of Jesus Christ. And this is one of those questions as we're looking at, uh, we come out of, of chapter 13 and we're going looking at toward the end of, of the Gospel of Matthew one of these questions that's going to continually come up and it's going to underlie um, what we read as we continue in this gospel is, is this question of Jesus' identity. Who is he and who is he really? Um, that, he was a, a, that he had great power was not disputed by anyone. Um, but, but where did that power come from and who is he? Is this, is this the son of a carpenter from Nazareth or is this someone else? And of course, we've already seen many of the, uh, those of the Pharisees have already uh, made their decision that, he, that he's empowered by Satan. And uh, the disciples have just recently at the end of here in, in chapter 14 confessed, you're the son of God. 
And so that's going to continue as we, as we go through. And we, so we see that chapter 14 sort of sets, sets us up for that. Jesus, he wasn't just a good teacher, and he, and he wasn't just a powerful miracle worker. Jesus is I am. He is God in the flesh. Now, he still had large crowds that were following him around at this point, but it's already been shown clearly that these crowds are mainly unbelieving. They, they do not have faith. Now, this chapter, chapter 14, that is, continued these themes of opposition and rejection that center around the identity of Jesus, but also the instruction and preparation of the apostles. And that really started back with, with chapter 10, was strengthened in chapter 13, and as we go forward, we're going to see that, that nearly every episode that we encounter is going to involve some sort of instruction for the disciples. So now we've come to chapter 15. And this chapter opens up with a conflict episode. So the scribes and the Pharisees question Jesus about the ritual washing of hands before eating. And Jesus responds to this question by countering with a charge against them for breaking God's commandments. And all of this leads to a parable that is given to the crowd and then private instruction to his um, apostles later. So as we look at this passage, we're going to take it into parts, verses 1 to 9, which give us the confrontation with the scribes and the Pharisees, and verses 10 to 20, which give us the explanation to his disciples and just a, a brief mention of the crowds there. So we'll start with the first part that begins with verse 1 and this confrontation with the scribes and Pharisees. Then came to Jesus scribes and Pharisees, which were of Jerusalem, saying. Notice that these scribes and Pharisees came to Jesus. And they came to him to initiate this controversy with him. They came to him to challenge him. That's, that's their purpose. We've already read um, back in, in chapter 12 how that they are counseling and conspiring together about how that they are going um, to destroy Jesus. And we've already seen that they're making efforts at questioning him. They're watching and observing everything he does, everything that he says. They're trying to entrap him. And ultimately what they are looking for is they are looking for something that they can use to bring a formal charge against Jesus um, in order to have him executed. So that's what they're angling for. And so these scribes and Pharisees came to Jesus with that motive. They are, are trying to catch him at something that they can accuse him with. Now it's also significant, as Matthew notes here, that they were of Jerusalem. Now we don't know... It's not clear here whether they came from Jerusalem specifically for this confrontation or if they had come from Jerusalem and were in Galilee for some other reason uh, and because the, they had this convenient opportunity. We don't really know. But, these, but the point is that these were not local scribes and Pharisees from the synagogues of Galilee, but they were more important officials from Jerusalem and obviously foreshadowing where this conflict will lead to and culminate in Jerusalem, where it's going to come to its end. 
Verse number two. And this is the question that they ask. Why do thy disciples transgress the tradition of the elders? For they wash not their hands when they eat bread. So they question Jesus as to why the disciples of this increasingly famous rabbi do not wash their hands before eating. And they accuse the disciples of transgressing the tradition of the elders. Now, um, this word that they use is, is, is significant. They transgress. This word means to break. It means to violate. In other words, it's, it's a serious wrong. So this washing of the hands that they're referring to, this is not just something that was, uh, that was merely customary. It's not something that was seen as optional for them. And they accused, because the disciples were failing to do that, that they were accusing them of transgressing the tradition of the elders. Now, what is the tradition of the elders that they are referring to? Well, the tradition of the elders refers to the oral traditions of law that were known as the halacha. The, these were rabbinical teachings and deliberations and judgments and decisions and opinions concerning the meaning and the applications of the Torah. The Torah is the written law of Moses, and as they counted it, the 613 commandments that are contained in it. And so down through the, the centuries, the various um, rabbis and, and, and scribes and doctors of the law and, and what have you, they would debate and deliberate over what the meaning of these commandments were and how that these things were applied in different situations. And, and as they went along, they, um, they came to various decisions and, and opinions, and these were sort of pressed into this oral tradition. So generation after generation, these traditions would just pile up. And the result was that they added more and more regulations and procedures to the lives of the Israelites. Jesus would refer to this practice actually of, as being that of binding um, heavy burdens on the people that, that, that they would not um, alleviate or relieve with even um, one of their fingers. Now these oral traditions were later compiled in, in written form uh, in uh, writings, the Mishnah and the Talmud. This was after the time of, of Jesus they began to write these things down. But they were passed along orally from generation to generation. Now, in Pharisaic theology and their view of Judaism, these traditions were equally binding with written scripture. So these rabbinical decisions and, and, and customs and, and practices were just as obligatory as the Ten Commandments, part of the Old Covenant law. They were the, they were the same. And that's why they use this term that they've used. They say, your disciples transgress the tradition of the elders. They didn't merely say they don't keep it. They said they're breaking it. They're violating it. Again, a very serious sort of charge. Now, the particular tradition that these scribes and Pharisees 
we're asking about was the ritual washing of hands before eating. This had nothing to do with hygiene. This had everything to do with ritual purification. So this practice was one that in the first century was widely accepted in Judaism. But what's interesting about it is that it had only arisen during the previous century to this. In other words, you, you go back to the books of Moses and you'll not find this practice. You go back to the history of, of Judaism before the exile, for instance, and you won't find this practice. This was not anything anywhere commanded of God, and it was of relatively recent invention by the time that they're talking about it here, but it had already gained widespread acceptance and, and observance among Orthodox Judaism. Now, in the generation before Jesus, there were two famous doctors of the law, and uh, so famous, in fact, as you uh, read different um, historical accounts in, in those um, the Mishnah and the Talmud, many of these other writings and, and, and Jewish writings um, coming from that time period forward, um, they, they are among, I think I read in one place, they are among the top ten um, of historical rabbis quoted and referred to and, and such. So they, they had um, a great effect on Judaism, not, not in that day, but also in this, this day, even today, uh, among those orthodox observers. So these two famous doctors of the law, one was named Hillel, and he was, uh, during his time, president of the Sanhedrin. Uh, the other one was named um, Shammai, who was the vice president um, during his time as well. And these two doctors of the law actually agreed on a lot. Um, they're, they're most famously remembered for their debates on things they disagreed about, but they actually agreed on a lot of things. Um, but they did debate many different points, and they represented at times two different approaches to the law that ultimately developed and became two different schools of thought within Judaism. And so by the time of Jesus' day, you had some division among the Pharisees of those that were followers and, and adherents to the school of Hillel and those of the adherent to the school of Shammai. Now, Hillel was typically the more liberal. And one of the sayings that they had about Hillel was that Hillel loses. And Shammai was ob obviously the more conservative opinion, uh, and it was generally said of him, Shammai binds. Um, now, they famously debated such questions as whether a man sinned by lying if he married an ugly woman and told her she was beautiful. And they debated such things as that. Um, Shammai, being much more conservative-minded, said that it was sin because it was a lie. Um, Hillel was, was a little more generous and um, said, well, certainly, you know, every bride is beautiful on her wedding day or something. And, you know, he, he kind of was much more lenient about that. They debated the grounds for divorce. Shammai had, had said that it could only be for a very serious transgression. And I'm not, not sure uh, how he defined that exactly. Um, Hillel, though, was, again, much more generous and allowed, allowed it even for the burning of dinner. Uh, and you've maybe heard that joke or that referred to, and that's actually where that comes from. What they, they debated such things as what position or posture is right for repeating the Shema. 
Now the Shema is, uh, that's Deuteronomy chapter 6 and verse number 4, uh, which basically became a, a, a prayer that's, that's repeated um, morning and even, evening. And Shema had argued and said that uh, when it's repeated in the evening, it should be done lying down. And when it's repeated in the morning, it should be done standing up. And Hillel held the position that said um, it could be repeated in, in any position or any posture that anyone chose. It didn't make any difference. Um, and so they debated, and some people say they debated over, you know, some 300 different points. And, um, you know, things as, as um, pressing as um, how much force was allowed to be applied to the head of the animal when they were laying on hands before the sacrifice. How much pressure, and did, and did whether or not that was for a feast day, did that make any difference as to how much pressure was permissible to put on the head of the, I mean, they, these are the kind of, uh, of minutia of things that they debated, but again, it gave rise to these and contributed to these traditions of the elders. Now, when it comes to these ritual washings, again, these were things that had arisen very recently to them. But both Hillel and Shammai were, were enthusiastically in favor of these ritual washings. And they very much agreed about these, that they ought to be observed and they ought to be done. Now, this is, comes from some of their followers um, who together agreed, and they said this of the ritual hand-washing, it had come down from Solomon and must be honored with the highest reward. Anyone living in the land of Israel, eating his daily food in purification, speaking the Hebrew of the day, and morning and evening praying duly with the phylacteries, is certain that he will eat bread in the kingdom of God. What does that mean on the other hand? is that anyone breaking, transgressing this tradition will not inherit eternal life. Now, when it comes to this ritual hand-washing, the exact procedure seems to have varied a little bit from uh, among different groups. But essentially, ceremonially clean water would be poured on the hands, and then the hands would be lifted up so that the water could could run down and not run back down, you know, because you don't want to contaminate the clean water by it touching your wrist or, or your forearm and then going back onto your hands and all, all of that. So, you know, you lift up the hand so that the water runs down and doesn't, you know, defile your hands. Uh, you, you rub the hand, one with the fist and, and, and so on. And this was generally practiced before eating every time. It was, it was an accepted practice before eating. And, and as these sort of things usually go, though, there was certain adherents um, that decided that doing it before eating alone wasn't enough, and so they also did it after eating, and they tried to espouse that position. Now, if you go back to the Old Testament and look at the Old Covenant, the only hand-washing there that you will find is in Exodus chapter 30, verses 19 to 21, and that pertained only to the priest and their service in the tabernacle. And there is no other ritual hand-washing that is mentioned anywhere or commanded anywhere in the law or the prophets. Verse number three. But he answered and said unto them, Why do ye also transgress the commandment of God by your tradition? 
So Jesus responds directly and rather sharply um, to these scribes and Pharisees. And essentially he, he says that their traditions transgressed or broke or violated the commands of God, i.e. The, the old covenant law that he is referring to. And then he begins quoting here. He says in verse 4, For God commanded, saying, Honor thy father and mother, and he that curseth father or mother, let him die the death. So Jesus quotes um, from the old covenant law, and he quotes two different commands, um, Exodus chapter 20 and verse number 12, and Exodus chapter 21 and verse number 17. And you can also find some other relevant commands that, that say uh, or speak to these very issues. Uh, Leviticus 19.3, uh, Leviticus 20 and uh, verse 19, Deuteronomy chapter 5 verse 16, Deuteronomy chapter 21 verses 18 to 21, and Deuteronomy chapter 27 and verse number 16. So the, the, Jesus quotes these laws, and then he goes on to say, verse 5, But ye say... Whosoever shall say to his father or his mother, it is a gift by whatsoever thou mightest be profited by me. And verse 6, and honor not his father or his mother, he shall be free. Thus have you made the commandment of God of none effect by your tradition. So Jesus here then refers to their traditional practice of Corban. Um, and notice, first of all, how he, how he says in verse 4, he said, God commanded this, and he quotes directly from the Old Covenant. And then he says in verse 5, but you say this. In other words, he tells them that they were actually acting as lawgivers to mandate some regulation or practice that God did not mandate in his written word. Now, Corban was the practice of declaring one's possessions as consecrated to God. Um, essentially, when, and when you look at the uh, command to honor your father and mother, we generally think of that in terms of, well, you, you know, we should, be, we should be obedient, you know, to our father and mother. That certainly was included, but actually honoring father and mother went, went much further than that and, and referred actually to um, the support owed to your parents in their old age. Again, this is, this is in, uh, in Israel, and there's no uh, retirement funds, and there's no Social Security, and there's no government programs, there's no this, there's no that. The responsibility for caring for aging parents was that of the children. So when the parents get to the point where they're no longer able um, to work and, 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 and such and, and what have you, then honoring your father and mother means that you are um, caring for them. So the Pharisees had found what they believed to be a loophole to supporting their aging parents as the law had commanded. Because for one, as, as Pharisees and such, they essentially saw themselves as you know, their whole, their life and their, their work, I mean, everything was devoted to God. And so all of their possessions then were in the service of God and could not be, you know, given to their parents because that would be robbing God, you know, they, how these kind of things um, come about. But Jesus says that you have nullified God's commandment by your tradition. 
So by their practice of, of Corban, they, they were actually explicitly violating what the law explicitly commanded. And they had come up with some tradition to try to work around it, to you know, get around it and to obviously justify themselves. Verse 7, ye hypocrites, well did Isaiah prophesy of you, saying. So Jesus straight and clearly rebukes their hypocrisy. And then he quotes from Isaiah. So in, in verses 8 and 9, This people draweth nigh unto me with their mouth, and honoreth me with their lips, but their heart is far from me. But in vain do they worship me, teaching for doctrines the commandments of men. So Jesus is quoting here from Isaiah chapter 29 and verse number 13. And in that passage, that Isaiah 29 is a woe to Jerusalem. So it, it is, um, it is a, a rebuke and a condemning um, of those of, of Judah for their sins. And one of the things that this passage condemns was hypocritical Worship, And so Jesus is saying essentially that their tradition, their, their practice of, of Corban is, is actually a hypocritical worship before God. And also, they rejected God's commands in favor of the commands of men. So the point is, is that God had commanded very clearly that they were to honor their father and mother. And the Pharisees had embraced the tradition, and I'm, I'm not sure... Uh, exactly where it originated and where it began, but as a part of the, the oral traditions and, and the customs. And so they, they embraced a, a practice that, that took an explicit command and said, you can break it, and thought that they, they were doing so um, righteously, piously. No, all, all of our, our lives are dedicated um, to God's service, and therefore all of our possessions are dedicated to God's service. And so, um, you know, for us to, uh, to, get, to, to give those um, to you, uh, in other words, you know, Jesus said they devoured widows' houses and so on. And so Jesus said they were doing exactly what Isaiah wrote about in Isaiah chapter 29 and verse number 13. Again, it's a very strong and a very plain rebuke, and it, it's going to get stronger um, as we go on, but this was certainly a very strong instance. Well, that brings us to the second part of this passage where Jesus briefly speaks, very briefly speaks to the crowds, but then goes on giving explanation to his disciples about this interaction. Verse number 10, and he called the multitude and said unto them, hear and understand. So Jesus calls to the crowd um, that they would come in close so that they can hear. He's calling them to listen carefully and to comprehend what he's saying. And of course, he goes on to speak to them in a parable. And it does certainly make us think about Matthew chapter 13, and we'll see some connections with it um, as we proceed. Verse 11, this is the parable that he spoke. Not that which goeth into the mouth defileth a man, but that which cometh out of the mouth, this defileth a man. Now, on the face of it, this parable doesn't seem quite as unclear, maybe as some others. Uh, and Jesus will explain this parable um, later to his apostles. 
But again, if, we, if you can, can think about um, we who have probably heard this uh, more than once, we've uh, heard it explained and, and we have some understanding of what's being said here because we've, we've read the next part of the passage. Remember, this, this crowd didn't have access to any of that. They just hear Jesus make this statement. And so even though, again, and, and parables are quite often like this, they're very easy to understand as far as, as the, the, the image of the parable. And, but what is meant by it, they obviously don't have any idea. And the disciples um, asked Jesus later to explain it, so they obviously didn't understand it either. Verse number 12. Then came his disciples and said unto him, Knowest thou that the Pharisees were offended after they heard this saying? Now, Matthew notes here how the disciples came to Jesus. So they obviously have questions and, and, and things to, to say. And we know that Jesus here, all the way through verse number 20, he's speaking to his chosen apostles now apart from the crowd. And he's going to give explanation just like what we saw in chapter 13. This explanation is once again a private instruction for these 12 men. Now, they mentioned to Jesus <clears throat> that the Pharisees were offended at what Jesus said. Now, the word that, it, that is used here for offended, um, primarily it means to cause to stumble. And it can be used in sort of a few different ways, just depending on the context. And in this particular case, it means that they did not or would not come to faith. That's essentially what, what they're saying. You, you have, you've turned them off. You have turned them away with this saying. And they're asking Jesus, do you realize that you have turned them away? And then we get his response, verses 13 and 14. But he answered and said, every plant which my heavenly father hath not planted shall be rooted up. Let them alone, they be blind leaders of the blind, and if the blind lead the blind, both shall fall into the ditch. So Jesus responds by talking about plants and planting and rooting up, and it almost seems like he's speaking in, a, in another parable, which he's not uh, explicitly speaking in a parable, but he is deliberately referring to a parable. In fact, back in chapter number 13. So Jesus here is using the language of the parable of the wheat and tares. Uh, Matthew chapter 13, verses 24 to 30. He gives an explanation of it in verses 36 to 43. And he is using reference to this parable to explain this interaction with the scribes and the Pharisees to his disciples. Now you remember the, in the wheat and the tares uh, is when the, the landowner um, has his um, field sown with good seed. Um, and then when it, when, it all, when it begins to grow up, it's found that there's tares or these uh, darnel uh, uh, weeds that are growing in amongst the wheat. And, of course, the servants, they want it. Well, you know, you want us to just, um, you know, pull them. You want us to tear it out. And, and he tells them, no, leave it alone. Unless you, you know, unless you root up the, the good with the bad. Just let them grow together until the time of reaping. And then when we reap, we will separate 
um, the wheat and the tares or the weeds. So this is, this is what Jesus is, is deliberately referring to. And he says, every plant that my father has, has not planted will be rooted up. Now the point is, when you get to the explanation of that parable in chapter 13, Jesus explains how that while the man sowed good seed in his, in his field, the enemy came um, secretly and sowed these tares in amongst the wheat. In other words, there were plants in this field that the owner planted, and there were plants in this field that he had not planted, but rather an enemy planted. And he's going to let them both grow together until the end of the age, when it is time for the judgment, when the, when the reaping will happen, when the angels will come, and then they will be separated and the wheat will be gathered into the barn and the weeds will all be gathered and burned up in the fire. So this parable is what Jesus is using the language and, and imagery of as he's explaining this interaction with the Pharisees. And again, the disciples questioned, you know, do you realize that they were offended? They were turned off by what you said to them. Well, the point is, the Pharisees then and the scribes, they are the planting of the enemy that exists and grows in this age before the kingdom comes. But when the kingdom comes, judgment comes before it, and such plants will be rooted up. And that means that presently, he goes on to say, leave them alone, just as in the parable. Leave them alone, and they will be rooted up when it is time. Then he uses another metaphor, and he says that they are teachers that are like blind leaders with blind followers. And none of them know or can tell or see where they're going, so they're all going to eventually fall into a hole, um, a pit. I think it says ditch here, but it's, it's something like a, a cistern or, or something, and, and the exact nature of it is really not, not what's important. But obviously, they can't see where they're going, and they're going to fall. Verse number 15. Then answered Peter and said unto him, Declare unto us this parable. Notice now that Matthew continues to draw attention to Peter. And we notice that beginning in chapter 14. And we're going to see Peter being uh, that more prominent figure among the apostles as we proceed through the gospel of Matthew. The parable that he's talking about, explain the parable to us. The parable refers back to what he spoke to the crowd, that it's not what goes in the mouth that defiles a man, it's what comes out that defiles him. That's what Peter is asking for explanation. Verse 16, Jesus said, Are ye also yet without understanding? He, he questioned their lack of understanding, their lack of comprehension. Um, they, they had... Compre they had not comprehended this parable nor his interaction with the scribes and the Pharisees. And given what was revealed to them in chapter 13, they, sh they should have been more comprehending. Verse number 17. Do not ye 
uh, yet understand that whatsoever entereth in at the mouth goeth into the belly and is cast out into the draft. Verse 18, but those things which proceed out of the mouth come forth from the heart and they defile the man. So Jesus sort of explains the, just the imagery of the parable, which again is, is quite simple, quite, quite clear. Whatever a person eats, whatever food that a person eats, it's something that is foreign to their body. It's not a part of their body. It's something outside, something detached. And whatever they eat, they, it, it goes in the mouth, goes into the digestive system, it's processed, passes through them, and so on. And it comes from outside them entering in. But on the other hand, Jesus contrasts this with what comes out of the mouth. Now, again, he's, he's not talking about food at this point. What comes out of the mouth, he's, he's referring more now to thoughts and words and actions. And we'll, we'll see that um, in just a moment. These are the things that come out of a person. What goes into a person like food and drink are not things that make him defiled, unclean, or profane. But those things that come out do. So, what comes from outside is not defiling. What goes, comes from inside is defiling. Verse 19. For out of the heart proceed evil thoughts, murders, adulteries, fornications, thefts, false witness, blasphemies. Now again, think about the setting and the parable that Jesus spoke after this interaction with the Pharisees. The question was about ritually washing hands before eating bread. And so what Jesus is saying is, it's not, it's not dirty hands. It's not unclean hands touching food before you eat it that makes you unclean. He said, what makes you unclean, and, and that would mean everyone, is what comes from within you. And he lists such things as evil thoughts, murders, adulteries, fornication, thefts, false witness, blasphemies. These are things, and this is not an all-exclusive list, it's just sort of a sample list of, of the, the sort of sins um, that we are guilty of, and, and oftentimes we may be guilty of these things in thought, and, and maybe we've not acted on that thought, but nevertheless, we, we've still yet sinned. Jesus has shown um, how that that certainly is the case. So it's, it's not what, what is outside the person that's making him or her unclean. It's what's inside the person. If you, and if you go back to the Old Covenant, like the book of Deuteronomy, um, Deuteronomy makes very clear that the problem, it wasn't the Old Covenant law, that wasn't the problem. And the problem for that generation of Israel that was going to enter the promised land, it wasn't the fact that there were giants in the land. It wasn't that there were enemy nations that were hostile to them and were going to war against it. That wasn't the problem. What was the problem? The problem was what Moses called their uncircumcised hearts. That's the problem. 
And of course, the old covenant had nothing to be able to remedy that problem. Verse 20, Jesus says, These are the things which defile a man, but to eat with unwashed hands defileth not a man. These are what makes a person unclean. And, and what that means, just to state it another way, this is what makes a person need to be cleansed. These are what makes a person defiled in that sense. And again, the Old Covenant very well pointed out this need, but it did not remedy it. It did not take it away. So as we think about this interaction, and if we think about it in sort of the bigger picture, the Pharisees and the scribes are referring to the traditions of the elders. So what, what's happening here in this passage? Well, they are choosing their teachers over the teacher who had come from God. This long line of rabbinical traditions that piled up teacher after teacher. They were willing to accept. They were willing to embrace and to receive and, and would choose them rather than the teacher that God had sent them who was standing there before them. So the Pharisees were those that had the promise of a new covenant. And they had one in front of them whose confessed purpose was to fulfill the old covenant and give forth his new covenant Law And they rejected Jesus and the new covenant in favor of the old covenant and rabbinical tradition. This rejection is why Jesus said they were plants that God had not planted and they would be rooted up. The implication again being they'll be judged and thrown into everlasting fire. And so if we think back to Again, the, the letter to the Hebrews, we see that this is the very thing that the writer to, of, of that letter is warning them about. To turn back, to try to go back to that old covenant, to try to go back to Jerusalem and the priests and those um, animal sacrifices and, and all those observances and all of those, to go back to that is to turn away from Christ and to go where there is no remedy for sin. Well, obviously, the, the Pharisees in, in this exchange had not embraced. They had, they had not believed, and they were, again, choosing their teachers rather than the teacher come from God. Well, it sort of just brings us to the question of who's your teacher? In other words, who, who are you going to believe about what is right and what is wrong and what your needs are, what your condition is before God? Who do you believe about what it is that makes a person guilty before God? Who do you believe about what makes a person right with God? The Pharisees are, are spoken of as, as they that justify themselves before men. And just like that practice of, of Corbin that they had, they had embraced because it justified them in their own mind. But here is Jesus, God in the flesh, telling them that they are hypocrites and not plants of his Father. 
And so they will be rooted up in judgment. And so it really does matter who your teacher is, who it is that you are going to believe.